we, we talked last week in our Lama talk about why we pray some, some of the traditional Jewish prayers and why we do it in Hebrew. And we talked about how Yeshua himself and the early believers prayed within the framework of the Jewish tradition of prayer. Uh, some, of the, some of the prayers that you'll see in the Siddur, the, the prayer book, are the exact same prayers that the Master and uh, the early Yeshua movement prayed. And we see, a great, we, we see a great example of this in Acts chapter 3. I want, I want to take the book of Acts. It's usually often the book of Acts is viewed as the document that shows how the gospel went from being an intra-Jewish faith, like being an internal Jewish faith, to being the faith that spread amongst the nations. And that's true. That, that, is a, that is an element of it. But there's also a very strong element where you can only understand it in the original Jewish context. And I'm going to give you an example here. Acts 3 verse 1 says that Peter and John, Kepha and Yochanan, were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. So that would be uh, 9 p.m., right? 9 p.m. I guess they worked a really long, hard day and they dragged themselves home and had some pupper, supper. And then at 9 o'clock, they, they went to the temple as the sun was setting. Right? 9 p.m.? Uh, no. How, how do these hours work in their world? Yes, that's right. It was three in the afternoon. The hours start from one, and I'm not saying we have to do this, right? But to understand it, the day, like the, the hours of the day, start at sunrise, and uh, the the whole uh, time that the sun is up from sunrise to sundown, um, there are twelve variable hours. The Hebrew term is a sha'ah zamanit. A sha'ah zamanit is a variable hour. So nine of those variable hours in, and uh, you got it. And especially in Saskatchewan, you know, you need that variable hour thing if you want to get it at the right time in the afternoon, because otherwise it just doesn't work. So anyway, they were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now, we, this, is, this is so cool because it tells us two things. They were devout Jews who would go up to the temple to pray at the time of the afternoon animal sacrifice. And for some reason, they weren't freaking out about it. Like, this was, this was, their theology was okay with this. They weren't there saying, you guys, this is so wrong, this is blasphemy. Don't you know that Yeshua is the ultimate sacrifice? You have to stop. I mean, if, if that was their, their approach, they wouldn't have been going to the temple to pray. I think we could agree on that. But they were going to pray at the time that the tamid offering, the regular afternoon offering, was being done. So that tells us something very, very important about the early Yeshua movement, uh, their attitude towards the temple and the temple service, um, the way they prayed, that they prayed in that traditional cycle of prayer. And, uh, you know, I, I never knew that when I was growing up. For me, I just understanding that brings it to life for me. And it also helps me be ready for the future when national Israel is going to rebuild the temple. When that happens, I, I don't have to freak out at it. Because Peter and John didn't freak out at it. And if it's, if it's, if it's okay with them, then it's okay with me. <laughs> Uh, the first time of prayer is called Shacharit, and that's the morning prayer time. And then, yeah, at sunrise, yeah, in the morning, or uh, or until well, it kind of varies. Opinion varies about how long that lasts for. Maybe until noon at the very latest, you could say. And then uh, the afternoon prayer time is called Mincha, and Mincha literally is a tribute to a king, and it's the hour of prayer. In Mexico, they take a, a siesta, right? But in ancient Israel, they would take a prayer siesta. They wouldn't just go and snooze, hopefully. Maybe some of them would. But. And then, and then there's, a, there's an extra added time of prayer before bed. Just, and that's called ma'ariv. And that's basically in the evening. And that's 
So. After sunset. Yeah. And uh, the, the, that tradition of praying at those times is based on the offerings that were offered every day in the morning, shacharit, and then in the afternoon, mincha. And then the one in the at night, they say, corresponds to when the priest would burn up all the extra fats and stuff on the altar. It's kind of like an extra offering. Yeah. So hopefully that just helps us, helps our understanding of the book of Acts come to life. Uh, chapter, there are some fascinating messianic titles in this passage, and I want to look at a couple of them with you. Because it, it gives us a bigger understanding of who Mashiach is, the role that he came to play in this world and in our lives. Um, 3 verse 5, Peter says, I don't, I don't have silver and gold, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Nazarene, walk. And did you notice that he didn't just call him Yeshua the Messiah, he called him Yeshua the Messiah, the Nazarene. And that means, you know, the man from Nazareth. But it took on like these huge proportions in the understandings of the early believers. This term, the Nazarene. Yeshua was the Nazarene. Why was that? Because Nazareth was such a, a big, famous place? Or it was such a, so central in their theology? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, in the Jewish world, if your rabbi hearkens from a specific town, then you'll often be called after that town. You're the sect of that town. So, what would be a couple of examples? Um, the Lubavitchers, Chabad. Their rabbi was from a town, if I'm not mistaken, Lubavitch. is a town, I think, in Poland or something. So, anyway, this, our, our movement, our rabbi Yeshua, came from the town of Nazareth. Therefore, he was called a, a Notsri, a Natsrati, a Nazarene. And we're his followers, so that's what we're called too. It's a, very, it's a very Jewish way of labeling a movement. And it's the way that we're labeled as uh, believers in Yeshua. There's another cool connection there because in Isaiah, it talks about the branch. And this branch theme is a messianic theme. He's the one who will, who will like, the, you know, the, the tree of Jesse had been chopped off and there was just a stump left. And the prophet says, but there are going to be shoot, there's going to be a shoot that comes up. He's going to come up from that stump and he's going to be anointed and uh, of course that was Yeshua and uh, that term there one of the terms for branch is Netzer can we all say Netzer? so Yeshua is the Netzer he's the branch from Isaiah and he's also from Nazareth from Nazareth so can you hear that connection in the early believers minds? the branch from branch town and we're, and we're his little branches branching off him because he's the vine and we're the little branches right? so you can just tell like this was something that those early Jewish believers loved like they just gobbled this up, right? These connections, wow, this, this is what he, Yeshua is about, this is what we're about. Is this sound okay or am I like, do I sound like I'm shouting or something? I'm okay? Okay. Yeah. So also in 4 verse 10, they also call him the Nazarene. Now, several chapters later, Paul is accused of being a ringleader, a pesky ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. There was this sect in the Jewish world and they believed that Yeshua was the Messiah and Paul was one of their ringleaders and uh, they were called the Nazarenes. So this was the common term. Today, the Hebrew term for Christians, for all believers in Yeshua, is Notzrim. Can we say Notzrim? Anachnu Notzrim. We are Notzrim. Because we believe in the man who is the branch, who came from branch town. And we're all branching off from him. We're Notzrim. Uh, the Arabic term in the Quran for Christians is the same thing. I don't remember the, how it is in Arabic, 
and also in Aramaic, that's the term. So, you know, in, in uh, all of these Middle Eastern languages, Christians are called Nazarenes. And uh, that's a closer connection to this, uh, this chapter and this idea. Uh, another Messianic title that I love in this passage is 3 verse 14. They say, but you disowned the Holy One and the Righteous One. So we, uh, Yeshua here is called Hakadosh. which is an in-your-face title. Because we know who Hakadosh is. Blessed is He. Uh, one of the traditional terms for the Holy One is Hakadosh. The Holy One, Baruch Hu, blessed is He. Uh, that's one of the most popular terms for God in uh, Jewish literature from that time. They call Him the Holy One, blessed be He. Hakadosh Baruch Hu. And here the emissaries are calling Yeshua Hakadosh. Um, we also call Him the Righteous One. I love that term in Hebrew. It's the Tzaddik. Everybody say Tzaddik. I mean, if, if we come from a Christian tradition, like, we don't, we don't generally call someone like, yeah, that guy's really righteous. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, it's true that, you know, people are righteous and we do value that, but it's not something that we, like, look up at with awe. Like, people, a righteous man doesn't take on the same legendary proportions that he does in Judaism. In Judaism, like, a tzaddik, a righteous person, he's like the hero of the Jewish faith. He is, he is the legend of the Jewish community, right? Um, the tzaddik is like the guy who gets his prayers answered. He's the guy who's like this with the Almighty. He's so close. Uh, he's the guy who would go and like, he could kill people. Um, he, he's in Hasidic Judaism, like in, in, uh, in the last several centuries, they have a tradition of uh, like, if you want to be close to God, you need to find a tzaddik who's close to God and get close to him. And he'll, he'll help you get close to God. And uh, that's true, actually. But you can't just go to any tzaddik. If you want to get close to the Almighty, you go to Yeshua, the ultimate tzaddik, the, the, the ultimate righteous one. And he is the one who brings you close to the Almighty. So you can just see like the, uh, the, their, their time clock in this chapter and the times they're using for Yeshua. They're so Jewish. Like It's almost like you, just, you don't catch this mash of it unless you, you, you read it in that Jewish context. Uh, moving on, uh, along the lines of traditional Jewish prayer, in 316, it says, The faith which comes through Yeshua has given this man to Yeshua this perfect health in the presence of you all. And I want to the term, this perfect health. Can any, does anyone know what it is in Hebrew? It's, it's, it's one of the phrases in the traditional prayers that's prayed for. It's like perfect healing, complete health. Rifuah shlema. Can we all say Rifuah Shlema? <laughs> you know, like uh, Yahweh Rafa, Yahweh our healer, right? So there's that root Rafa, and you can hear it in Rifuah, healing. And uh, so Rifuah is healing, and Shlema, Rifuah Shlema. What does Shlema mean? Yes, that's right, wholeness, completeness. Shalom means wholeness, completeness. And here we have refuah, shalema. So it's a, like a whole healing. It's a complete health. And uh, apparently, this, this thing that is prayed for every day by like, observant Jews, this thing is answered through Yeshua the Messiah, through the faith that comes through Him. Wow! See, we're learning from this, we're learning from Acts 3 right now, how to present the good news to Jewish people. How to explain Yeshua in a way that will actually be meaningful to Israel. And I think that's important because 
we're getting geared up for that. We're in training right now. The Father, I believe that when, when, when the body of Messiah is ready, the Father is going to start bringing so many Jewish people to the body of Messiah so that we can accurately share the gospel with them and represent Mashiach to them. So that's why I'm keying in on this right now. <laughs> we can view it as, as part of our training. Uh, 3.18 Yeshua's apostles mention that all of the prophets, they all foretold something. They all foretold that His Christ, His anointing would, would suffer. It's probably one of those catch-22s where they're like, I memorized the whole Torah. I grew up reading the Bible all the time and I never realized it. All of a sudden they were like, after the event of Yeshua's suffering and His death, they realized, oh, the Mashiach had to suffer. His anointed one had to die. And then He had to be raised from the dead in glory. So you can tell, like, this is, this is hot off the press, hey? And uh, it, it, traditional Judaism has wrestled with this concept too. You know, um, the sages have read the passages and they, they read the Psalms about, from David and they, they, they conclude... You know, the, the Messiah, he's going he's gonna to suffer immensely. He's going to be rejected just like David. Uh, Joseph, in the book of Genesis, he was rejected by his brothers. He, is, he suffered immensely, but he went on to be a very powerful individual, and he went on to rescue his whole family from existential disaster. And so the sages read these passages, and what, what's their conclusion? There must be, the Messiah, he's going to have to suffer, he's going to have to die. But how can the Messiah die? There must be two Messiahs. That's the, that's the most popular Jewish conclusion. There must be two Messiahs coming. One is going to be the son of Joseph, Ben Yosef. And Mashiach Ben Yosef, he's going to be the Messiah that suffers. He's going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be the one that dies. And then Messiah, son of David, he's going to be the conquering king. He's going to be the one who leads us to military victory and establishes Israel as a sovereign state, uh, maybe as a world superpower, uh, those types of dynamics, you know, gets that, fills Israel to that 600 million ideal population mark we talked about. This is the conclusion in traditional Judaism. Now, let me ask you, are there two messiahs who are coming, or is there one messiah who's going to have two comings? Maybe Yeshua is coming as Mashiach ben Yosef, the suffering servant the first time to be rejected and to die, and the second time around, he will come as Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, the king, who is going to rule with an iron scepter, who is not going to tolerate unrighteousness, who is going to implement justice on an international scale. Yeah, yeah, that's, what, that's the way things are going here. And the coolest thing about the traditional Jewish understanding of Messiah is they say, Messiah, son of Joseph, isn't going to stay dead. Because we understand from the Tanakh that he has to be raised from the dead. So Messiah, son of David, is going to come and he's going to raise Messiah, son of Joseph, from the dead. Now we know that's not exactly the case, right? This is Orthodox Jewish understanding, messiology. So even in the Orthodox Jewish understanding, the Messiah has to suffer, he has to die, he has to be raised from the dead. Now, is, is it too much of a stretch to say, well, yeah, I believe that Yeshua was that Messiah. But he's coming back as Messiah, son of David. And it wasn't Messiah son of David who raised Messiah son of Joseph from the dead. It was the Father who raised His Son from the dead. That is our faith. So hopefully that can be something that can help equip us also in explaining what we believe about Yeshua 
You know, like if you approach a Jewish person or you start talking about your faith and you're like, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? It's like automatic disconnect, right? It's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. This Christ thing, that's a very Gentile term, right? But if you say, yeah, like, okay, you know, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, well, I believe that Yeshua, whose adopted father's name happened to be Joseph, he was actually Yeshua ben Yosef, I believe that he's Messiah's son of Joseph. But I also believe that he's Messiah's son of David. And he's going to come back to answer the traditional prayers of the Jewish people and, uh, and bring about all those prophecies for Israel. Yeah, that's good news. That's good news for Israel. Greg, were you going to say something? Okay. I like how we have that. <laughs> right on. Okay. Um, 3.11. I think it is no story. 3 verse 21. That Yeshua, heaven has received Yeshua, the anointed one appointed for Israel, until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So, Yeshua is in, in Shemaim, in the heavens, and he's going to be there until a period of time comes called the restoration of all things. And there's some divergence of opinion about what the Hebrew term is there. I'll give you both of them because it's cool. Uh, in the traditional Jew understanding, our mission in this world is called Tikkun Olam. Can we all say Tikkun Olam? The Olam is the world, the universe. And Tikkun is like healing or repairing, fixing. <laughs> so in the traditional Jewish understanding, we are co-workers with the Almighty healing the world fixing up the universe. You know, it kind of had a breakdown when Adam and Eve sinned, and since then there's been this universe, like a home renovation project on a universal scale, right? And uh, through our faith, through our, our responsive faith to, to Yahweh, through our prayer, we are able to be co-workers with Him in seeing His glory restored to this world, in seeing healing come to the nations, in seeing healing come to, like, the cosmos on an atomic level. That is what your faith does. That's the traditional Jewish understanding. And you could, you could understand this as the same idea. Uh, Yeshua is going to come in conjunction with that period of time, the restoration of all things. Let's say that in Hebrew. The, the, like the, the period of the tikkun of all things. There's going to be a period of tikkun olam where Yeshua comes to bring that final healing to the world and to his people. Wow, hey? And then there's another word. The other word means like to return to an original state, to repent. What that could tell us is that in conjunction with right around when Yeshua is coming back, there's going to be a massive move of God where His people return to the ancient paths, where we come back from where we came. So, you know, if people talk about the Torah and they say, oh, you know, we left the Torah. You, you're going back to that? That tells us something. We left it. We're, we weren't supposed to leave it. We want to go back to it. We don't want to go back to legalism. We are not going back under legalism, right? But we are returning to the Torah, to the ancient paths, to the lifestyle that Yeshua modeled for us. This is the restoration of all things. And it has to happen before He comes back. So for those of us who are into this Hebrew roots thing, or uh, you know, we're messianic or whatever, you are cutting edge. You are part of what I believe is going to be the final move of God before the return of Messiah, because this is restoration on a huge scale that has not happened in the body of Christ since like the two and three hundreds. Wow. 
That's exciting. Okay, 326. I'm going to teach you something about how to pray for somebody. Okay, you know, pop phrase, God bless America, right? I don't know. People don't say God bless Canada up here, do we? We don't have bumper stickers saying God bless Canada. It's a little different in Canada. But, uh, you know, there's this blessing thing. It's like the classic one-liner. If you're going to pray for someone, you pray that God would bless them, right? And then there's some other things we like to pray. But I, I, and sometimes I've been like, I don't know. Like, what if, what if someone is just living in horrible sin and they're like thumbing their nose against the Almighty and how they're, how they're doing their life and stuff? Like, I don't want to pray that God's going to bless them in that state. But uh, I want to give you a little tip. You can pray that He will bless them based on Acts, verse, Acts 3.26. This is one way that He blesses us. Acts 3.26. For you first, Elohim raised up His servant and sent him to bless you. To bless you how? By turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So, you know, if there's some person and they're just living like the devil, you can, it's a powerful thing to say, Father, I pray that you would bless that person. Father, as a priest on this earth who has been invested with your authority, I bless that person in your name. Begin praying like that and he will bless them the way he wants to. So if the biggest blessing he can do for that person is to turn them from their wicked ways, that's how he's going to bless them. Isn't that cool? So now you can pray that he'll bless people and you'll know what, he's, you'll know what that means in your mind. <laughs> yeah, so that's a prayer tip. It's a great thing to pray for Israel too. When you pray for the Jewish people, when you pray for Israel, when you pray that Elohim will bless them, what you may be praying is, Father, turn them from their wicked ways. Turn them from being the nation that has the highest abortion rate per capita. Turn them from like the disgusting stuff they do in Tel Aviv. I'm not going to go into details. All that to say, when you pray that God will bless Israel, it, that's a pretty tall order, but he wants to do it. And it may result in a repentance movement amongst the Jewish people. So that's a tip for how to pray for Israel. Um, 4 verse 13, Acts 4 13. Moving on, we, uh, we read here. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that indeed they had gone to seminary and... Uh, were accredited ministers with PhDs under their belt, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Yeshua. Yeah, these guys were like top of notch, educated. I mean, these guys had 20 letters after their names with lots of dots in between them, right? Like these guys, they had a mate. They were, they were super godly because they had... No. Is that, is that, is that what it says? Okay, I have to say, I want to say this. Like, I believe in education. I'm all for education. I, I do think that there's a place for um, education in terms of people preparing for, uh, you know, leadership in the kingdom and stuff like that. But it just doesn't say that, does it? What we, what we see is that there was a religious set up, system set up in Israel where men who felt called didn't go to the Almighty and sit under His teaching and go through the training that only He can give a person, which breaks a man very deeply, which humbles him. The system in that time was you, you go and you learn from, a, from someone who learned from someone else who learned from someone else. And then you get, you get smicha, like you get your ordination from them, and then you're accredited to teach the Torah. Because you're the, the son, rabbinically speaking, of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who goes all the way back to Moses. And uh, Yeshua, he wasn't a part of that system. Uh, the disciples he called, they weren't part of that either. And I suggest to you, maybe Yeshua has a different way of raising up leadership in the kingdom 
than the, the world's way or even the traditional Jewish way 2,000 years ago? Could it be? There are some similarities, right? I, 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 I don't want to sound like I'm slamming anything because I'm not. I'm just saying when it comes to training leaders in the Messianic Jewish movement, this is an area that needs ongoing dialogue that we need to be really intentional about um, so that we can grow as a movement, so that when we have, let's say, young men who feel a call from God to serve Him full time, that there's something they can do instead of just floundering or feeling lost or going to a seminary where they're, they have their love for the Torah taught right out of them, um, things like that. I have friends who have been through seminary and they said, you know, there's some good things to seminary and there's some bad things too. I have friends who they, they went through seminary and most of, their, most of the people that they graduated with are now burnt out. They're not in ministry anymore. Many of them are divorced. Um, sadly, this can sometimes be the aftermath of a seminary education, which is supposed to prepare a young man of God to minister for God. And, and sadly, sometimes it doesn't happen. So anyway, what we see with this is the key is being with the master, isn't it? These guys, they didn't have any degrees. They had no academic credentials. They were not ordained from the rabbinical institutes in Jerusalem. But what did they have under their belt? They had logged hours and hours of personal, one-on-one -on -one time with Yeshua. And that's what's available to us too. And that's what's going to do it. Hopefully that is what will be recognizable in each of our lives. You know, wouldn't it be cool if people are like, you know what? Yeah, I just, uh, I just met Greg the other day. And I can tell this guy spends time with the Master. Like this guy, he's been with Yeshua, I can tell. Like Yeshua's rubbed off all over this guy, you know? I, when, I, when I'm around Greg, I just, I feel like I'm around Yeshua. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of sense, right? That's, that's, the, uh, that's the goal of discipleship. And uh, that's an area we're going to continue to grow in. Um, chapter 5 of the book of Acts kind of blows the dispensational idea that the Old Testament was when God operated on the basis of law and he punished people who disobeyed and you know maybe he was a little angrier in the Old Testament and maybe even killed people but he would never do that in the New Testament because and it's the dispensation of grace and it's the church age and it's all grace. Uh, Acts 5 blows that theology out of the water. Acts 5 is the chapter where God kills two people for being fake with him. Wow. Like, this is the New Testament here. This is, quote, the church age. This is like when grace was around, right? If we want to look at things through a dispensational lens. And uh, what we learn from this is, the Almighty hasn't changed. Here, O Israel, He is one. He's one and the same. His, his justice is still the same. His, his, his mercy is still the same. His grace has always been around. And... Uh, Sometimes people pray, you know, that, that God would come, that He would come in His glory, and that He would that He would uh, that He would visit us as His people. And I agree with that prayer, but I don't think we always realize what we're asking for or what we're going to get ourselves into. Like, can you imagine if people with hidden sin in their lives dropped dead in church, or if you had an apostle confront somebody because they were hypocrites and they were faking it? And the, and, the, and the person dropped dead on the spot. I mean, wow, that would kind of ruin your day, hey? Or maybe it would just, like, man, everybody would freak out. You'd, call the, you'd probably call the ambulance or whatever. I mean, wow. But, like, this is a picture of what happens when Yahweh dwells in the midst of his people. And I believe that he is restoring us 
to the ancient paths. He is bringing us back to a life of observance. Not legalistic observance, but love-based observance. An observance that comes from devotion to Mashiach. He's bringing us back to obedience so that when He does come in His glory, we'll have the lowest casualty rate possible. Yeah, that's the idea. And I'm thankful for that. I want to go along with that process. You know, I, I don't want any of us dying in the future when he, really, really, when he really comes in his glory. I want to survive. <laughs> so that's, that's the message from Acts chapter 5. Um, in Acts 5 verse 16, we read something interesting. It says, uh, Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of, of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And most of them were being healed. But to some the apostles said, God doesn't want to heal you right now. It just isn't the will of God to heal you. Yeah. Oh, is that what it says? I'm like, really? Yes, it says they were all being healed. You know, sometimes, sometimes we always preface our prayers for healing by saying, God, if it be thy will, I pray that you would heal this person. And when we read the account of in the Gospels and Acts, there was never a person who came to Yeshua and was turned away not healed. Every single person who came to him, he healed. Now, we don't have Yeshua here in the flesh. There isn't like massive spiritual power pouring through, through him in the same way, maybe. So, I mean, you know, maybe it takes time sometimes or there's a time delay. I don't know. But just what I see from that is it is God's will to heal people. They were all being healed. Wow. Isn't that great? Oh yeah, maybe we should try that. If one of us are sick, we'll like we'll put the person outside in the sunshine, and then we'll do the shadow casting ceremony, and we'll we'll walk by so our shadow falls on them. Maybe if we did that in faith, yeah. Good point, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So another example: the leper. He came to the master. What did he say? He said, "Master, if it be thy will, if you're willing." You can cleanse me. And what was Yeshua's response? Immediately, he reached out to him and he said, I am willing. Be cleansed. I am willing. Be healed. So, we can hear him saying that today in each of our lives. I am willing. Be healed. Be cleansed. Um, 531. I want to give you another key, strategic key for praying for Israel, for the Jewish people. It says, He is the one, referring to, the, to Yeshua, whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So let me ask you, how does Israel repent? Yeshua grants repentance. Wow. So, one strategic way that we can be praying for the broader Jewish community that we are a part of, excuse me, is... Um, we can be praying that he will grant repentance to Israel. Repentance precedes forgiveness of sins. Repentance precedes Hamas being routed and permanently removed from the face of the earth. Repentance precedes all of Israel's problems being solved. Right? It's, it's, it's almost like it's the root. When Israel repents, everything's going to be okay. If Israel doesn't repent, it doesn't matter how much we pray for them, it doesn't matter how big their military is, 
it doesn't matter how much money is poured into the country, they will still fail because the Torah says that they will fail. If, we, if, we're, if we're not true to the covenant as a nation, then we get the curses. And there are very long lines of curses. But if we repent and we return to Him and we listen to His voice, then there are blessings. So that's how we can be praying for the Jewish people, for repentance. That's like the fountainhead. How does that sound? It's praying for repentance. And what was the other thing? We talked about it a little earlier. But there was another one. Praying what? Yes. Right, right. They're connected, aren't they? Turning from the evil ways because he blesses. Greg. Yeah, and that Hebrew word repentance. Mm. Wow. That's true. And I mean, returning and repentance in Hebrew are synonymous terms. Actually, huh, oh, you just reminded me, I'm going to share a verse about that. If you want to turn to Lamentations, let's look at a verse in Lamentations. This is a bonus I'm just throwing in. Um, as you know, the ninth of Av, the ninth day of the fifth month, was this last week. It's the exact day when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the second temple was destroyed by the Romans. Um, of course, there was massive slaughter of people that accompanied it. It was a disaster, almost unprecedented. And the, the book of of Asaph, the book of Lamentations, is read on the ninth of Av, the ninth of the sixth month. So observant Jews were fasting during for this whole day, um, doing extra praying. And oh yeah, sorry Genevieve. I think I saw the number six when I was looking up Lamentations. I know what Lamentations is in the Jewish Bible, but I don't know where it is in the Christian Bible. That's in page six. Yeah, right. Okay, I found it. Lamentations. Yeah. Um, okay, the last verse in Lamentations, it says, oh, sorry, the second last verse, Return us to you, Yahweh, that we may be returned. Renew our days as a Yeah, exactly what you said. It's like, we can't even turn of our own volition. He returns us to him. So that we can return. That's another great thing to pray, isn't it? That's true. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I know, I know the fast was acknowledged in the book of Zechariah, along with the three other traditional Jewish fasts. And it, he didn't say, don't fast. He just said, I'm going to turn those days in the future into days of joy and, and gladness. But that's a good point. It's not like you can fast to undo something that's happened in the past. I think it's an expression of mourning. Um, 
you know, maybe like the may we never forget concept. Maybe it's a day to pray for the rebuilding of the temple too. Um, I mean, you know, on, on a spiritual strategic level, that's the worst day on the calendar. That is a day to be on high alert, to be extra, extra like conscious through fasting and stuff, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, hey, we're beginning to clue in. Disasters always happen on this day. Maybe we should fast on this day and, uh, and pray for his mercy, hey? That could be, yep. Okay, one last verse in the book of Acts. Isn't this rich? Oh, I love Acts. Uh, five. What Shoshana said, and that he would bless the broader Jewish community by turning us from our wicked ways. They're connected, aren't they? Um, 532, it talks about... Oh, this is like, this is a shot. They took a shot at the Sanhedrin here. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So you can hear what they're saying, right? They're saying, He's given us the Holy Spirit, and He has not given you the Holy Spirit, because you are being disobedient. And uh, that was... That was like the final breaking point for them. That's the point where they kind of freaked out, it looks like, and they wanted to kill the apostles. And then Gamaliel intervened, thankfully. But uh, did you notice that? Who does he give the Holy Spirit to? I, I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit like flowing through me and operative in my life. Like I've never, I've never raised someone from the dead even. That's stuff that the Master did regularly. He said we would do even greater things than that. And I know it's there. I know that there's a level that can be lived on like that. And it happens when the Holy Spirit is just, you know, the Ruach HaKodesh is like so flowing through a person. And so I, I think about this, right? And I see this key. It's, it's a, yes, it is faith-based, right? We receive the gift based on faith, but it also says those who obey Him. <laughs> and hey, that's an area where we can all grow, isn't it? That's an area where I can grow. In my observance of the Torah, I've, I've been really coming to realize in the last year, there are areas where I, I can get sloppy because I've been doing this thing for a while. I can begin to kind of just do it as a matter of routine. Uh, you know, I can put my tzitzit on in the morning and not even think about why I'm doing it. And I think that's missing the point. I think it is. Maybe, so, you know, this whole obedience thing, this is something we're growing in. And maybe that's also why this return the Torah that's happening today in the body of Messiah is so critical because this is a vital component of obedience. I mean, you know, in, uh, in the Torah, this Shabbat, we read about the Big Ten. The Big Ten, one of them is Shabbat, right? Most of us in the body of Christ, we don't take Shabbat very seriously anymore. It's, it's the way it is. I don't know. Maybe that's disobedience. Maybe we would experience a greater, a freer flow of His Holy Spirit and a greater degree of his power operative in our lives if we just started doing Shabbat. Maybe we would just be aligning ourselves spiritually for that to just come through us. You know, I, I, I guess we're an experiment. I guess we'll see if that happens. As a movement, I guess we'll see if that happens. But I, I suspect, and I think I have reasonable grounds to suspect it, that that may be the case. So let's continue to grow in our obedience. As we grow in our obedience, we'll also be growing in the power of the Holy Spirit and in that life flow. Wow. Um, in Hebrew, do you know what the Hebrew term is for obeying him?
In Hebrew, it's like lishmoabakolo. To listen to his voice. That's the Hebrew term for obeying. So you know, a child obeying a parent. What's the, what does that literally mean in Hebrew? The child listening to the voice of the parent. So they're saying, Elohim gives the Ruach HaKodesh to those who shema to his voice. That Hebrew term shema means listen, that's right. So, having said that, let's look at the Torah. Because this is the passage where we get to read the shema. Hey, I'm like, says when we listen to his commands, when we shamah to them, eh? I don't know, like, I'm a prairie boy, right? I, I didn't actually get to see much of the ocean for a long time, but when I did, I realized, oh, I mean, sometimes the waves are peaceful and they lap on the beach, but man, sometimes they are like smashers, hey? Maybe, maybe, uh, I wonder if it has that connotation too. Just that, like, uh, relentless, like, powerful dynamic that comes with righteousness? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah, so let's look at Deuteronomy together. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Oh, yeah. Like uh, the spirit of the law, hey? Even when you begin to understand the spirit of the law, the intention and the commandment. Huh. Wow. Maybe we can do that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's almost easy, you know, when you do come from an observant perspective, it is almost easy to just say, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But maybe that's missing the point, hey? Like, thinking about why did he say to do this? What does this mean, you know? Huh, that inspires me, actually. I want to do more of that. Yeah, even just starting to read the Old Testament. That's a good step, isn't it? Well, we were raised that, you know, the Old Testament is, well, more important in one sense, you know, like we were raised that. Wow. 
Then what? Oh. Right. Yeah. Maybe they're all connected. <laughs> okay. Um, this Hebrew verb, shema, that means to listen. But it, it means to listen obediently, right? Um, Moses actually uses it three times in his parsha. You, know, you can turn to like Deuteronomy 4 and we'll, uh, we'll look around here. Uh, in four, Deuteronomy 4.1, Deuteronomy 5.1, and in Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses says, Shema Israel. Listen, Israel. And then he says, his, uh, like Devar Torah, his, his, uh, his prophecy and stuff. Um, let's look at the Shema first. I think it's first in so many of our hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he goes on to say some things about these words, about the Shema, about the Ten Commandments, and that we're going to look at that in a second. But I wanted to just share with you a couple deeper insights into the Shema, into this passage. Yeshua said, of course, it was the greatest commandment in uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, it only has him, it only records the second half of his quote, but the book of Mark records the whole thing, the hero Israel part. So, firstly, who is the greatest commandment addressed to? To Israel. Hear, O Israel. Is, so, if we as believers uh, believe that the greatest commandment applies to us, what does that say about our identity? you must be part of Israel. If Yahweh is your God, you must be part of Israel. One God in the heavens, one people on the earth. Echad, echad. Uh, let's look a little further. Did you notice there are two verbs in this passage? The second one is to love Him. And that's the one that we're, we're really big on today, right? But what's the first one? To listen. Shema, listen, and then ahava, love. And I think this is very true on relational levels, like between us as people too. I think this is true in a marriage. I can't really love Genevieve unless I listen to her. I can't really act in loving ways to her unless I actually hear what she's thinking about or what she likes. Maybe she likes it if I put the toilet paper roll on so it goes backwards or if I leave the toilet seat up. Or maybe the opposite. Yeah, the opposite. See, I've been listening. I know this. <laughs> right? So I can't, I can't act in loving ways to my wife unless I, like, spend time talking with her and uh, get to know her and to, unless I shema to her. Right? And that's very true of our relationship to Yeshua, our, our Messianic bridegroom also. We can't love the Master if we don't know Him. We can't, like, speak His love language and do the stuff that He likes unless we spend time with him, study his word, do things like that. So uh, that's, the, that's, the first, that's the first insight into the Shema that really jumped out at me. Uh, the second one is something that you would have to read in the Hebrew to understand. Everywhere in the Hebrew where it says, you shall this, like the ahavta, and you shall love, for instance. You can read that in one of two ways, and they're both true. One of them is, you are to do this. And it's more like an imperative, right? It's a command. However, the way it's phrased also, and I think more literally means, 
Like it's just stating the way things are going to happen, what you are going to do, right? So I don't know about you, but some days I do not love God. I do not feel like I love God at all. Sometimes I wrestle with questions. Sometimes maybe I'm just feeling not good inside for whatever reasons. Or We all have our times when we disconnect, right? For me, it's especially in the morning. I feel so groggy when I get up sometimes. I'm like, oh, I feel so far from God right now, and I don't know if I love him at all, right? <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. Like, at times like that, when I know he said to say the Shema, I'll say the Shema with Genevieve and I'll pray in the morning when the feelings aren't there. But instead of taking the Shema as an imperative, you shall love him, I'm like, I can't do that. I, it's not like I can work myself up emotionally to the point where I, quote, love him. This is only something that he can do in my life. There is a fire, and it is the fire of love. And it is the fire that we read about in the Song of Songs. And it's the fire who is, who is God. We read several times in this Parsha, He is the consuming fire. And He is the fire, the fire of love, of whom it said that we'll be immersed into in the New Covenant. Yeshua will immerse us into the, His fire. That sounds kind of scary. I don't want to burn up. But you need to read the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, to understand what fire that is. It's the fire of his love. And so we can read the Shema from a gospel perspective as a promise that, you know, I might be spiritually dead. I might feel so cold-hearted today. I might just feel gross inside and I don't even want to think about, about God. But you know what? The gospel according to the Shema is that he will inspire that love in my heart if I let him. He will ignite the fire of his love in my heart if I take him at his word in faith. That's the gospel. Wow. So, you know, there's some mornings when we'll say the Shema and I was like, I am not feeling this, but and those are the mornings when I'll just thank him for the gospel. I'll thank him that he came to bring my heart to life. I'll thank him that he came to ignite the fire in my heart. And uh, things, things actually begin to look up after that. And it helps me remember that he's the mover and the shaker in the... Uh, this, this, uh, this big plan. Yeah. So, um, another thing that we see in the Shema, and this also applies in interpersonal relationships, does loving Him start with the mind? Does loving Him start with our physical actions? No. Loving Him doesn't start on, like, this level. Loving Him, that's like hands and feet, right? Action and stuff. <laughs> loving Him doesn't start on this level. Loving Him starts on this level. If this isn't here, then it, like, the whole thing is sunk, right? And uh, that's sometimes hard because, like, we live in a world where there's evil, where we have all been hurt at some point in our lives, some of us very deeply, where we have been severely tempted to lose heart, to get discouraged, to just check out emotionally, to give up inside, to just start going through life, doing the motions and just surviving. See, the problem, though, is when we go along with that way of thinking, and I think we've all been tempted at times to do that, I know I have, we can't love him with all our heart anymore because we're not in touch with our heart. And maybe that's the gospel too. The Yeshua came to heal our hearts, that he came to bring our hearts to life, that he came to fill our hearts with his love so that we can actually love him with our hearts, with all of our hearts. Wow, that's the gospel. When we receive Mashiach, we are on our way to having a heart that is full of love. And I, I don't know, I'll, I'll, here's an example. Um, I've been around a couple people, like a couple guys before they're married, when they're really in love with a girl, maybe they're like courting or maybe they're betrothed or something, 
and you can just tell like they're different. You can tell they're in love. And I'm not referring specifically to you here, Colin. Just so you know, I'm thinking there's one guy in Israel specifically that I'm thinking of. And he was like, he was engaged and he was going to be married soon. And he was so happy. We were working together in some agricultural stuff. And he would just look at me with love in his eyes, right? Like, I was like, he's totally not seeing me right now. He's seeing the girl he's going to marry. He's totally not talking to me. We were just talking about mechanical stuff, right? How to do something on the farm. And he was like saying it so affectionately. And I was like, this is kind of weird. <laughs> but I know it's just because like he was, he was so in love. But that's the way it is on inner spiritual lives too. Like we're, when we're in love with Yeshua, it's just going to get a, it's going to get all over everybody else we come in contact with. We're going to look at everybody through those eyes of love, right? And uh, maybe that is a little bit about you too, Colin. You're, you're pretty happy right now. I, I like that. We're all really happy about that. Yeah, we want to celebrate that too. But you don't look at me and like with that much love in your eyes or like talk to me in really affectionate ways yet. You've never called me honey or anything. <laughs> okay, um, anyway. So those are a couple of things in the Shema that I really appreciate. Um, another theme that jumps out at me over and over in this passage is the theme of study. Um, what's the Hebrew word for disciples? Talmidim. Yeah, it's correct. Uh, Mike, you're a Talmud. We are Talmidim. Plural. Hmm? Yeah. Shoshana is a Talmida. That's the female case. So, um, what's the root word of Talmid, the root word of disciple? It's Lamad. Can we all say Lamad? The word, uh, there's actually a letter in the Hebrew, Aleph Bet, that's called Lamed, and it's the same root. A Lamed is like a big letter. Um, here, I'll draw it with my hand, my finger, just so you can see it, right? See, it's like way up here above the line, and it goes down to the right, and then under like that, right? And I mean, you, I think you all know Hebrew, so you know what I'm talking about, right? But lamed is a picture of an ox goad, like of something that you would poke an ox with and kind of guide him along, right? It has the idea of direction, discipline, and this is the root word of us as disciples, this is the root of learning, of lamauding. So when Moses says over and over, ago, over again that when it comes to the Word of God, there's this element of active learning, we learn something from it. Like, okay, number one, it doesn't just happen overnight. Discipleship doesn't just happen overnight. It is a lifelong process of learning. Uh, if we just like become disciples and keep doing life as usual, and we don't like block time out of our schedules to study the word, if we don't prioritize like group study like this also, we're not going to get much lamauding done. We're not going to be like very high quality Talmudim disciples, right? So what we see here is just, there's, a, there's such an element in the Torah, in the life of discipleship, of learning, uh, of study. And I mean, you know, study can be hard. It can be mentally exertive, can't it? So on the one hand, we have like Peter and John who it says were uneducated and untrained men, rabbinically speaking, on an academic level. On the other hand, these men were Torah scholars of a very high caliber. These men were men who, who studied the Torah regularly, who went deep in the Word. And uh, what great examples for us too. Yeah. Um, let's look at the couple of verses after the Shema. It says, it says what to do with the Shema. It says, uh, these, these words I'm, uh, 
I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. So we learn, when it, when it comes to Torah study, you know, engaging on a heart level is the first element, right? Making it personal. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. Uh, then it says, teach them, to your, teach them to your sons. Teach them diligently. And, uh, and talk about them. Like, you know, when you're sitting at home having breakfast, or when you're all around the supper table, talk about these things, the Torah. Um, you know, when you're driving on your, in your car to work, or to congregation, or you're on a road trip, talk about the Torah. You know, when you get up in the morning, talk about the Torah. When you go to bed at night, talk about the Torah. Like, let this stuff be in your mouth. And, uh, you know, we could, we could understand this in one of two levels. Number one, it could just be talking about the Shema, and that is a traditional Jewish understanding. What it literally means is, like, when you go to bed at night, say the Shema, quote the Master saying the greatest commandment. You know, when you get up in the morning, let the Shema be some of the first words off, off your lips. Uh, I don't know if you do that or not. If you do, wow, you've probably had the experience of what a great connection point it is with the Holy One. If you haven't, I, I highly recommend it. You know, when you wake up in the morning, don't just like jump into your day and go for it. Um, before you even go for the coffee pot, stop and say the Shema. That's a real connection. Um, that's a real energy source. And... Uh, I think that, that's what it's talking about. You know, Genevieve and I do that and we found it's, it's great for our relationship too because it gives us regular points where we stop and we, we say the Shema and we don't just say it, we pray together, right? And maybe we'll exchange some words of Torah so we'll talk, about, we'll talk about the word and stuff. So, you know, saying the Shema is great on so many levels. Highly recommended. Um, it goes on to say, actually, like, Write these things on the doorposts of your house. Like, bind them as a sign on your arm and on your, on your forehead between your eyes. And, uh, you know, the temptation is to look at this and say, well, he couldn't be, this couldn't be literal. Like, he couldn't, talk, he couldn't be saying to actually write this stuff on the doorposts of my house. To actually, like, tie this stuff on, these things on my body. Could he? But we discovered that in Yeshua's time, it was taken literally. These th were things that were actually done. Um, and I believe that the Master did these things too. Why? Because uh, when he talked to the Pharisees about binding to fillin, about their phylacteries, he didn't say, man, you guys got it totally wrong. Like, this was supposed to be an al allegorical, right? And you guys are taking it way too literally, you crazy Pharisees. He just said, you guys make them, like, you make, you make your tefillin honking big so you can get attention and people can think you're so righteous. He just, he, 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 uh, he criticized their motives, right? So, I have a set of phylacteries, a set of tefillin. I, I, try and, I try and get them on once a week to pray and read the Word. Um, there's one more place where it talks about them in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to bring them and do a live demo for you. I think, I think you'll think it's cool. Um, maybe some of you have seen them before, I don't know. So that's a, that's a trailer to look forward to. I'm going to go till 12.30, is that okay? Yeah, okay. We're not going to Saskatoon this afternoon, so it's kind of nice feel a little more relaxed yeah so anyway the thing on the doorpost that's called a mezuzah doorpost in Hebrew is mezuzah and uh, the thing the, the, tying them is a sign the scripture boxes and uh, in, in the Torah those are called totafot there's a totafot for your head there's a totafot for your bicep uh, the popular Jewish term that's used today is tefillin can we all say tefillin yeah so um Deuteronomy 3.24. I'm just going to highlight a couple things in this passage that I think can enhance our discipleship that are relevant to us as a movement. 
uh, Deuteronomy 3, verse 24, we, uh, we get to listen in to Moses praying. Like this is personal one-on-one prayer, right? And we get to listen in. And this is what he says. Oh, Master Yahweh, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. And then he, he goes on. But uh, I just want to point out what he calls God. Uh, in the Hebrew it says, Adonai yod Adonai Yahweh. And uh, the Hebrew term there, Adonai, it means like my Lord or my Master, but it actually is in the plural. So it literally says, my Lords or my Masters. Okay? The singular is Adoni. Adoni is like my Master. Adonai is my Masters. It's interesting that Moses calls the Almighty in the plural. It might simply be because God as Elohim is in the plural. It just stands for him being like the intensification of all power, like consummate might. Uh, that's kind of the concept in Hebrew. But it is interesting. Um, in, in modern Hebrew, if you say Adoni, if you call someone Adoni, that just means sir in modern Hebrew, right? So like, you know, if you're, if uh, let's say you have a cashier who helps you and you just say, thank you, sir. You say, thank, you know, thank you, Adoni. And you're not calling him your Lord, right? You're not calling him your Lord. You're just calling him sir. <laughs> you're not saying that he's the master of your life. You're calling him sir. Okay, so um, the, term, the Hebrew term Adonai is a respectful term, okay? It's a, it's, like a, it's a sign of respect. So to call the Almighty Adonai, it is one of his titles. Uh, Abraham, it says, called the Almighty Adonai. Moses here does. He's called that in several of the books of the prophets uh, and in the Psalms. So uh, it's okay to call him Adonai. There's this crazy suggestion out there that the term Adonai is from like the Greek pagan god Adonis, therefore we shouldn't call him Adonai, but that isn't true. Moses called the Almighty Adonai. It's okay to call him that. So I I have something to point out from this passage though, if we're like just in a traditional Christian church, if we are traditional Messianic Jews, and if we're people who are more into the sacred name dynamic. Okay, so I think we, we have a little something here for everybody that we can learn from this. Firstly, we learn that God has a name. If we're in a traditional church, when we read our Bibles, it says the Lord everywhere, doesn't it? It doesn't have his name. But that doesn't work when you have the phrase Adonai Yahweh, because Adonai is translated as Lord, and Yahweh is translated as Lord. So you end up calling him the Lord, the Lord. Lord the Lord. It doesn't work, right? And so, I mean, translators bend over backwards and they do all sorts of translational like, what do you call them, like gymnastics or something. What's that? Contortions. Translational con- contortions, right? Like in, in the NASB, for instance, this, uh, they render this as, O oh Lord God. So instead of saying Yahweh, it says God in all caps. Like, it's confusing. It is not user-friendly, right? This, this is a problem. So, you know, the first thing we can see in here is God has a name and his people, historically, have called him by name. He, in fact, it says... Who is a nation? Who, like, what nation has a God who's so close to him as, as us whenever we call on him? Talks about the patriarchs calling on his name, right? So that's the first thing that we can learn. Uh, if we're coming from a traditional Jewish perspective, then we would never pronounce the name of God, even though halakhically you are allowed to use it on Yom Kippur. Uh, we would just say Hashem if we're talking about him, or we would say Adonai in prayer instead of actually saying his name. But what we see here is Moses and others like Abraham, they used God's name in prayer. And you know what? If it's good enough for Moses who gave the Torah 
it's good enough for me. Heaven forbid that I would be someone who, you know, takes away from the Torah or adds to it. It's one of those no-nos he specifies in this parasha. And uh, for those of us who are more like, okay, I use the name of God, but I hesitate to uh, like associate myself in any way with like the sacred name label because oh, there are so many crazy, freaky things out there under the sacred name label. Like, there's some real extremes. People who say, you know, if you were baptized in the name of, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that wasn't legitimate. You're not saved. Or, uh, you know, if you, uh, if, you, uh, if you call in the name of Jesus for salvation, that, that's a pagan god. And, you know, you're not calling on the one true name of... And then, of course, at that point, it's like, well, what is his one true name? And there's this big argument in the extreme sectors of the sacred name movement about how to say his name. It's like, well, maybe it's Yahushua or... Uh, Yahoshua, or Yahoshua, or, uh, like, it goes on and on, right? And it's just this massive mess. And everybody claims that unless you call on his name the right way, then you're not saved and you're certainly not part of our righteous club. It's really weird. I don't know, if you just, if you really want to get weirded out, get on the internet and check out some extremist sacred name sites, okay? Um, Anyway, I just want to point out here, though, that Moses did address the Almighty, not only by his name exclusively, but he also used titles. He did call him Adonai, right? Um, I, I find sometimes for those of us who, who, you know, who do cherish the use of the name of God in prayer, you know, like myself, sometimes we can be like, no, only his name. I'm only going to call him by his name. I'm never going to use any titles. And we end up like never calling him master, although we should because it's a respectful term. Uh, we never call him certain things, you know? So I encourage you, like in the midst of our our recovery of the use of his name. Let's, like, let's stay strong in the use of his titles, too. They're rich. They're deep. They're meaningful. Like, let's call him the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Let's call him the, the Great I Am. Let's call him Father. Let's call him Master. Let's call him the Lord of the Universe. I mean, let's not only call him by his name. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And also, this is just a personal thing, okay? I'm going to share with you a little personal opinion. Um, when we're doing like traditional Christian songs and stuff and they call him Lord, it's okay to call God Lord. He is the Lord. He's my Lord. Okay, it is an old English term, right? It is a little out of date. Um, if you ask Joe on the street what Lord means, maybe he'll think of like seven lords a-leaping or something in tight pants or whatever, right? Like, it's an old term. But I mean, it's okay. This is my opinion. It's okay to call him Lord in contexts like that. I don't know. Like, okay, here's my opinion. If we're singing traditional Christian psalms, songs, I don't know. I'm okay with just calling him Lord and not like always putting his holy name there instead. It's almost kind of hard. Like when we're singing a traditional Christian song and half of us are singing Lord and half of us are singing God's name, it's like, I don't know what to sing. And it's like, it's confusing. <laughs> so anyway, that's just a little personal thing that I, I've been thinking about. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. I'm out of time. Ah, is, don't you love this parasha? It is so rich. There's like so much meaty material in here. Here, I'll show you how much I got through. This is my first page of notes, and this is, this is what I got through. And then here's my, here's my second page that I didn't cover yet. <laughs> don't you love it? Maybe we should just do this parasha next week too. Anyway. Um, you know what? I'm just going to shoot this off to like in like well, one sentence summaries, okay? Because it's so rich. Um, Moses says, I'm going to tell you a joke. Is that okay if I just like summarize this for you? 
Moses said, don't add to or subtract from the word of God. So uh, here's the joke. Moses said that, so the uh, Jews went and multiplied, and the Christians divided. Jews are famous for big families, multiplication. Christians are famous for splitting into lots of denominations, right? So, in general, though, if you're from a Jewish background, your propensity will be to add to the Word of God. If you're from a Christian background, your propensity will be to subtract from the Word of God. It's almost, it's stereotypical, but it's true. So let's try and, like, avoid both extremes, right? Um, Moses says that our our wisdom and our understanding in the sight of the nations is our observance of the Torah. It's not intellectual pursuits. It's not a bunch of head knowledge. It's how you do your life. It's applying the Torah to your lives. That is the biblical definition of wisdom. Um, There's this interesting term where Moses literally says that the the people were under the mountain, tachet hahar, when they came into the covenant. And there's this Jewish tradition that like, he suspended the mountain over them and he threatened to drop it on them unless they said yes to his proposal. It's like coercion. I don't believe that's true. But that could, be a, that could be a clue of why Paul talked about being under the law. It's like an approach where you're forced to do Torah, where you are coerced into observance. We'll talk about that more when we go through Paul's letters. Um, the Ten Commandments in Hebrew is Aseret Devarim. Can we say that? Aseret Devarim literally means the ten words. Uh, the traditional Jewish term is actually Eser Hadibrot. Can we all say Eser Hadibrot? Yep. It says where, from whence he spoke, he spoke from the fire. What that tells us is when we experience that immersion into his fire in our lives, that is the place from which we will hear his voice. The people of Israel were freaking out because they thought it was going to kill them. They were right, actually. The fire of Elohim will kill something inside of you. It will kill your selfishness. It will kill your ego. It will kill the stuff in you that he doesn't like. And that's a good thing. So let's, let's go into his fire, even if it's painful. Let's listen to his voice there and, uh, and go through that process. It says, whom he shows grace to. Yeah, he shows grace to everybody. He feeds the whole world, it's true. But specifically, it says that he shows chesed. He shows his grace and he guards his covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. In Hebrew, it's like his lovers and guardians of his commands. So if we want to experience the fullness of his grace in our lives, if we want to experience him just like showing that covenant devotion, that strong, that strong devotion, you know, there is that element of being his lover. There is that element of actually guarding his commands in personal observance. And that's where there's this level of grace that we won't otherwise experience. It says to do Shabbat. The other half is to work for six days. The Hebrew word there for work means serve also. And Mike and Shoshan, I thought of you too when I read that because you two are working hard right now. This is a season where you're working hard. And I want to encourage you. The Hebrew word there for work also means to serve. And it just reminds us that just as much as it's a mitzvah to rest on Shabbat, it's a mitzvah to serve him the other six days in, in the, the work that he's given us to do. And... Uh, you're, you're, you're serving him just as much at your, quote, secular jobs or whatever enterprises you have as you are when you, when you worship on Shabbat. So let's remember that. Serving him every day. Moses says over and over in this parsha, the Torah is good. The commandments are good. When we do them, it will go well for us. He wasn't lying. That didn't change when Yeshua came. How do I know that? Because Paul says in Romans 7, the law is good. The commandment is good. 
It's still true today. I don't care if pop theology says doing Torah will, is to your harm. It's going to mess you up spiritually. It's going to make you something you don't want to be. It's not true. The Torah is good. The commandment is good. And when we do them, it will go well for us. It's the promise of God. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.